All right, we're in Mark chapter 15 this evening. As Pastor John already introduced, uh, this Friday before Easter is the day that we traditionally celebrate uh, the death of Christ. Christians all around the world today, all throughout history, have stopped to pause and reflect what it is that took place on this day. And as he already drew attention to, perhaps you've been wondering to yourself, why are we singing about things that are so dark, even horrific, right? We've sung songs about blood and wounds, a crown of thorns, a cross even. If you had seen a cross, a crucifixion, it would have made your stomach turn. It was horrifying. And yet here we are, not just talking about it, but singing about it. As Pastor John has mentioned in the previous weeks, the Bible does not shy away from talking about death and what happened to Jesus in this final week of his life. If you remember him saying that there's very little details given to his birth, to his early childhood, but the brunt of the Gospels are centered in on this last week of Jesus' life. Today we're going to give special attention to Jesus' death. And Mark actually presents Jesus as being forsaken. Forsaken by man as he is literally hanging on a cross and people are walking by hurling insults at him and mocking him. And as we just read just a minute ago, Jesus is forsaken by God. And I think it's important for us, maybe even logical to ask why. What is the significance of this? Why was Jesus forsaken like this? What had he done? And as we look at the text, I trust that these answers will become more and more clear to us. We'll begin by considering how humanity forsook Jesus. It starts in verse 21. We'll reread through these first couple of verses. We see, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Just prior to these verses, Jesus has experienced severe physical trauma. He he, he has been beaten. He's been whipped. If you have footnotes in your Bible, you can see a description of this whip. It says that it is multi-lashed, containing embedded pieces of bone and metal. This thing was designed to inflict maximum damage on someone. Jesus has had a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. It's no wonder then, just based off of the sheer amount of weakness and blood loss that he's experienced, that verse 21 begins by telling us that someone else had to take his cross for it. This is before he's even been crucified. 
the abuse and torture that he has faced is horrific. Even for his crucifixion, we're just given a phrase there at the end of verse 25, they crucified him, and we know what this entailed, right? Spreading Jesus' hands out, hammering nails into his wrists and into his feet. He's hung there like a piece of meat left to hang and die. We can tell by these people's responses and even where he's crucified that the crucifixion, the horrors of it, weren't just physical. There was a psychological element to being crucified as well. Right, they bring him to Golgotha, likely right outside of the city in a very public place. He's stripped of his clothing, hung out for everyone to look at and mock and revile. Normally, we treat death as very sacred. There's a soberness to it. We treat it with respect and quiet and reverence. Not so with Jesus. He is humiliated. This was a spectacle. And we're left asking ourselves, what did he do? What kind of person gets this treatment? Surely this is reserved for the worst of the worst, right? Let's look at verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So it's evident from the inclusion of these two other guys that robbery was a significant enough crime to warrant a crucifixion. But what was the charge laid against Jesus? The text says he is the king of the Jews. That hardly strikes us as something deserving of torture and capital punishment, right? And yet this title is loaded with significance. This represents an effort on the part of the religious leaders of the day to kill Jesus. For a while now, Jesus had been making these statements, equating himself with God, rebuking the Pharisees and the chief priests and saying, you guys are not leading people closer to God. You're actually leading them further away. You guys are hypocrites. As you can imagine, Jesus was not endearing himself to these people by the things that he was saying and doing. And so they look for a way to kill him. They hate Jesus. They hate what he is teaching. And so one night, they arrest him without cause. They have a trial in which he is falsely accused. None of these things stick against Jesus. And finally, they attribute blasphemy to him, and they want to put him to death. But they can't. They need the governor's permission to put someone to death. And so they go to Pilate. And although they had charged Jesus with blasphemy in the court at Caiaphas' house, they come to Pilate and say, this man says he is trying to be the king of the Jews. This is his claim. Very subtle, but what they're doing is they are switching the charge so that Pilate thinks, this guy is coming after the same piece of property that I own. He's trying to be ruler. Ironically, Pilate isn't phased by this. He looks at Jesus and he says, I find no fault in him. He's innocent. Pilate has it right. Jesus is innocent, not just in the events of the last 24 hours, 
But Scripture says that Jesus never sinned. And yet these people, in their hatred and in their blind rage against Jesus, stir the crowd up into a frenzy and are screaming, crucify him. They're putting this innocent man to death. And so the charge against Jesus that we read about in verse 26, that he is the king of Jews, is loaded with significance. It represents injustice, a mock trial, the hatred and determination of these people, peer pressure on the part of Pilate. When you see king of the Jews, it's a sham. These people are trying to kill Jesus. It's so evident. And Pilate, in one last act of, we might even say sarcasm, puts king of the Jews on the placard that goes above his head. The religious leaders are like, whoa, 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 that's not exactly what we wanted. And he said, no, this is the charge you came to me with. We're keeping it. Look at how Jesus is treated as he hangs on this cross in verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It is astonishing at how many people join in on this mockery of Jesus, right? It's not just the chief priests and the religious leaders who are ganging up on Jesus. The text says the random person that walks down the road stops and hurls insults at him. The two guys on either side of him who are crucified themselves join in on this mockery of Jesus. And we asked the question at the beginning, why do we celebrate this? What is the significance of Jesus' death? Because if this is just another historical account of someone making enemies and then being put to death, then this story isn't significant. We wouldn't be here today if that's all this was. Unfortunately, this happens more often than we'd like to admit, right? People make enemies. Their enemies take them out. This isn't unusual if that's all that's happening. Thankfully, these next verses give us another perspective of what is happening on the cross because it's not just mankind that has forsaken Jesus. We see that God forsakes Jesus. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, 
Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And this centurion realizes what a lot of people had been blinded to or willingly rejected to see, right? He knows who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. This is what Jesus had been claiming the whole time. To be the Son of God is to be God. We look at other passages of Scripture and see that Jesus is the eternal creator God. He is the one who made everything, and that God did not remain way far off, uninterested and unconcerned in humanity. That eternal creator God became one of us. And how did we treat him? We killed him. And yet Jesus' last words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, demonstrate to us that what has taken place on the cross is not just the outcome of a plan that these guys put together just a couple of days before. There's more going on here, right? This is the plan of God. I think I could demonstrate that pretty well. Jesus' last words are not something that he just kind of randomly came up with on the spot. This harkens back to Psalm 22. Let me show you on the screen here. The very first verse of Psalm 22 reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The parallelism continues in Psalm 22. Notice verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is what people were doing to Jesus on the cross. Matthew actually cites that these people quoted verse 8, beginning with he trusts in the Lord, back to Jesus as he is hanging on the cross. Can you imagine the boldness to quote scripture back to Jesus as he is on the cross? It continues, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my lots and for my clothing they cast lots. Does this sound familiar? What is happening to Jesus here? Again, it's not something that a couple of guys came up with a couple of days before in their attempt to kill Jesus. This was written by David like 900 years prior to these events. God had written about it through David, his servant. He said, expect this. This was the plan of God. The whole of the Old Testament, you know this, is one giant funnel that is pointing to one single event, the coming of Jesus, not just his birth, but his death. This was God's intention from the beginning. 
that his son die? And the question begs to be asked then, why? Why would God's plan include his son dying? To answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning, to the first time that God walked among men. It's in the garden. You know this, right? Adam and Eve, God, they have perfect fellowship with one another. There's one rule. They disobey it, and immediately things change. Romans 5, probably words at best. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. There's a lot to unpack here, but I just described that first phrase, at Adam's sin, sin entered the world. But notice it wasn't just sin that's present. There's death through sin. Scripture is clear that death is a natural consequence of sin. This was clear to Adam and Eve from the outset. God said, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Sin and death go hand in hand. And then notice that last phrase. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that this affected. Death spread to all men because all have sinned. We are sinful through and through, and thus we too die. You can see the effects of sin on our world even today. Decay, disease, death, they run rampant. You see natural disasters and you see disease just wreak havoc on people and you don't have to wonder, where did this come from? It's right here in Genesis. When sin entered into the world, it brought with it death. But it doesn't just involve physical death. No, Romans 5 elaborates in verse 18 that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So sin not only brings death, but it brings with it condemnation. We might say judgment. We're lawbreakers. God is holy. He's just. He cannot let sin go unpunished. His attitude towards sin is wrath, and his justice and his wrath meet in eternal condemnation, and that poses a real problem. Because if we're sinners and God is holy, we're in trouble. Our outcome is this condemnation. And we are incapable in and of ourselves to be reconciled back to God. Sin is too much a part of who we are. We cannot be good. We cannot meet God's expectations, but God in his goodness did not leave humanity without hope. First, in the Old Testament, God tells people that you can make atonement for your souls by shedding blood. In Leviticus, God says that, and with that, he introduces the sacrificial system in which people bring animals to be slaughtered for their sins. This is probably most well-known on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, in which there is a goat that symbolically has all of the sins of the people of Israel placed on its head, and it's sent off into the wilderness. 
that goat bears all of the iniquities of the people on itself. And this practice continues throughout the Old Testament. But there's an inherent problem with this system. Hebrews says very clearly, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices could not truly forgive sins. You could just cover them. That is, until the arrival of Jesus. He did what no human prior to him had done. He never sinned. And so the consequences of sin that I described just a couple minutes ago of death and condemnation were not true of Jesus. He wasn't under those things. He wasn't a sinner. And yet, as we've already noted, God had a plan. And it is not for no reason that Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Like the goat on the Day of Atonement who went out into the wilderness bearing all of the sins of the people on himself, so too did Jesus on the cross bear the sins of mankind on himself. Listen to how Isaiah 53 describes this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And to reinforce what we've been saying already about this being the plan of God, notice that last phrase, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see what this text is saying? We were the ones who have sinned, transgressed. We are the ones with a mountain of iniquities, and yet who was punished? Jesus. On the cross, Jesus takes our place. He takes your sin. He takes my sin. He takes the full weight of God's wrath and justice poured out on sin. On the cross, the innocent one is punished. And those of us who are guilty, if we're in Christ, it's been taken care of. So when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is the blameless, spotless Lamb of God who is experiencing, as that last phrase, the Father crushing him. And I wanted to take us back to our title slide and make a slight edit to it. We noted that Mark is pointing out how Jesus is forsaken. But in light of these texts of scriptures, we could add to this that on the cross, Jesus is forsaken instead of me. We are the sinners. We are the ones who deserve what was happening to Jesus here. That condemnation should have been true of us. And Jesus, that perfect substitute, bore it in our place. So what did Jesus' death accomplish? Well, we have a clue from the text here. Look at verse 38. We read, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top, to bottom. The curtain that had for so long 
kept people from God. Only one guy, once a year, is allowed to go back in there, is ripped, top to bottom, symbolizing this glorious reality that access to God is no longer restricted. Jesus has made a way for all people to come to the Father. 1 Peter 3 phrases it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is what Jesus' death accomplished. This is why we're here celebrating something that to all of these outsiders looks like, why are you singing about blood and a cross? To us, it is glorious. This is what has secured our redemption. Look at what Ephesians says. We'll just close with this verse. Ephesians, describing the death of Christ, says this, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is what Jesus' death has accomplished. Where the Old Testament sacrificial system fell up short time and time again, sacrifice had to be offered over and over and over again only to cover sins, Jesus dies once for the forgiveness of sins. And so the encouragement for those of us who are not yet in Christ is come, repent, place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And for those of us who do know Christ, this is why we celebrate, because a death has secured forgiveness. And this is only half the story. We have a lot to look forward to on Sunday.